Let us turn in our Bibles to Luke 9. Luke 9, 57 to 62. Luke 9, 57 to 62. Read the Word of God, and after I read, we will pray again. Verse 57, And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the earth have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That is the reading of the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we come to you on this day. We honor you. We thank you. We magnify you. And we pray, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And may your will be done here on earth as it and in heaven. All things are from you, for you, through you. We pray that you may be magnified. We pray also for those who are gathering. In this your day, celebrating the resurrection of the Lord, and as they are gathered around your word, we pray your blessings upon them. We pray for your spirit to come and gather with your people wherever they meet. We pray for the Spirit to take of your word and dispense it to those who preach and teach that Christ may be exalted, that the gospel may be preached, that as your word is read, hearts and ears may be rendered in obedience to you. Father, we also pray for us that you help us to profit from the reading and exposition of your word. You know the hearts of everyone gathered here. I don't. I don't even know my own heart, because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who will know it? Your word says that only you know. Father, we pray that your word may be effectual, that it may be a piercing sword, that it may reveal the intentions of the heart, that it may be, bring glory and honor to you, and also bring us to the obedience of Christ, to a sincere and pure devotion to we commit these things to you, aware that aside from you, we can do nothing. So it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What defines a Christian? Somebody asks you, whether you are a Christian or not, at least you visit a church, you have heard about the gospel. Somebody tells you, what is a Christian? What would you ask? I don't know, belonging to a certain denomination. Remember the days when I thought, honestly thought that men 
belonging to my denomination. I was in a cult and I didn't know it. I thought that to be a believer, you have to really belong in that fundamentally circle. Not true, because that fundamentally circle I was part of didn't have 2,000 years around as the Lord has in the resurrection and the new covenant was inaugurated. But I thought so. Some people believe that being a Christian has something to do with belonging to a certain group of people. Others that being a Christian has to do with performing certain rituals. Oh, I was baptized as a baby. Therefore, I'm not a, the Spanish word is moro. I'm not a Muslim anymore. Now I'm a Christian because I was baptized. Nothing to do with it. Oh, but I take communion. I go to church on Sunday. Nothing to do with that. Well, I'm a Christian because I don't drink, and I don't dance, and I don't smoke, and I don't do all of these things. Nothing to do with that. But there's always a wise person that says, Oh, being a Christian is not about religion or confessional standards. Being a Christian is about following Jesus. Yes. But what is it to follow Jesus? Our text this morning considers that. Considers those challenges to discipleship. And Jesus challenged three people that were meant to follow him with three statements to challenge their disciples. What is then to follow Jesus? And in this passage we find Jesus meeting, and I and these are my own pointings. I remind you of that. When I make this outline, I'm not saying the text says that. No, the text says what I read to you. Now, for the sake of going through the motions or going through the text, I have split these three individuals that Jesus encountered as the enthusiast, but materially. Uh, the uninformed enthusiast, I should rather say. And then he found this doubting materialist. And finally, the interested person who was happy. And I want us to look at these three individuals wanted or were called to follow Jesus, but Jesus challenged the three of them with the true terms of disciples. What is it to follow Jesus? Well, let's look at these uninformed enthusiasts. Verse 59, or verse, uh, uh, yeah, verse 59 says that this individual came to him and said, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, I imagine that if, that if you find a person after a sermon that eagerly says, Oh, I want to what you're teaching. I want to do what you said. Well, tell me more about it. That, that would be so enriching, so encouraging to the one who's talking. But Jesus didn't seem to be too moved by this expression of enthusiastic desire. Matthew, in the parallel passage, describes that this person was a scribe. So this is not any common thought. It's not an emotional person. And we encounter those. We encounter those emotional people. Oh, yes, the Lord is always excited. No, this is a scribe. This is somebody who knew the law. This is actually somebody who belonged to the people who opposed Jesus. And he break rank 
and comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Perhaps, and I'm speculating, that's the text I read to you. It's my speculation. And the speculation of some commentators, by the way, didn't make this up. This scribe saw in Jesus truly Messiah, and he too thought that he was going to inaugurate the kingdom to Israel very soon. So perhaps out of a, an incorrect eschatology, an incorrect understanding of the last things, he said, well, this is the time to follow him because here's Messiah. Maybe. Or maybe this scribe saw in Jesus what saw. Somebody who didn't teach like everybody else taught. And he found in Jesus a safety net. Somebody who was really worth following. And he says, I will follow you wherever you go. Perhaps this rabbi thought, I can find shelter, security, stability, comfort in this person. And to me, it's fascinating how Jesus answers to him. Jesus doesn't invite him to follow him. Jesus doesn't say, oh, that's great. I'm so happy that a scribe is following. He's finally seeing the truth. He didn't do what any of us would do before an enemy that all of a sudden turns into our friend. Jesus tells him, probably knowing his heart, the foxes have holes. They can get there in the evening and find shelter. And the birds in the air, the birds of the air have nests. They have homes and trees. I don't have a place where to lay my head tonight. You sure? I mean, it's a statement about Jesus' poverty, by the way. It's a statement about the humiliation of Jesus. He didn't even have a home. He relied on friends, and some of them were wealthy friends, like probably Lazarus and Martha and Mary were, and others, and those women who accompanied him and provided for his ministry. He relied on people where to stay. He relied on friends, hospitality, basically carry out his ministry. And he tells scribe, you have to know that I don't even have a home and there's not a lot of room. There's already 12 of us. So you're sure what you want to do. That's a very stern statement and a very deflating answer for somebody who wants to so enthusiastically follow Jesus. Reminds me of the parable of the sower. Remember that? The, the seed that falls on shallow ground and it immediately sprouts, but then it is choked or when the sun rises, it disappears. Because there are people who at the beginning get very enthusiastic about Jesus. Oh, this is wonderful. And your church has a youth ministry? Yes, Nana meets with the young ladies every Sunday. So if you have a bring her. Nana will, will fix all the blunders I make when I preach and she'll fix them in her young, in her meeting group. No problem. And do you guys also have Sunday school? Yes, you can come Sunday school and your children will be instructed. And what else do you have? And people get excited or they come to that age when children start to grow up and start to spread their wings and they get scared about drugs and rock 
and the hippie culture, not hippie, there's no hippie anymore, but the, but the I don't know, whatever, the, the culture of today, and I need to do something about my children. Let me bring them to church. And they get interested and enthusiastic with religion. Usually those people are short-lived. They come for the flavor of the day, and they keep going to the next flavor. And Jesus warns of that. Because there are two things that stifle false discipleship. Tribulation and monotony. Let me tell you a trick. There's not a lot of new things to teach from the Bible. It's one story, one message, one point. A lot of things that you can say, but at the end you end up at a cross and at Jesus crucified. That's what the subject matter is. And we can, we can approach it from different places, but it's always the same subject. Monotony and tribulation will do away with those who are shallow followers. Jesus' answer did not provide too much security for this scribe. He lived a homeless life. He lived a poor life. I don't have a lot to offer. Same happened in John 6. People came to Jesus because they ate bread. Lord, where were you? They came the next day all excited. They even went around the lake or took boats themselves. Where were you, Jesus? And he told them, you came not for me. You came because you ate yesterday and now you're hungry again. And when he gives them the true terms of discipleship, they turn against him. Because that shallow enthusiasm turns into opposition the moment you understand the cost of following Jesus. It is costly. It costs you employment, popularity, money. Jesus doesn't promise a great life to those who follow him. Secondly, there's this doubting materialist. We see him in verse 59. Jesus tells him, oh me. This is not one who to follow Jesus, but whom Jesus calls to follow him. And he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this answer is more challenging. Because let's face it. Follow me. Well, Lord, I have a funeral. Let me attend to it, and then I'll come back. And Jesus says to him, no. Let the dead bury their dead. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Kind of weird. Why would Jesus say that? Well, that harsh answer demands an explanation. Remember, the Bible is interpreted with the Bible. Always a rule. In the law, even a priest about get contaminated with a dead person if it was to bury a close relative. So even the law allowed a priest to get unclean in a ritualistic sense to go bury their father. It is unlikely that Jesus would prescribe something against the law because he didn't come to break the law, he came to fulfill the law. So there has to be something more here. Perhaps, perhaps, this man just wanted to say, you know what, let me go bury my father. The father was still alive. And all he meant was, well, let me stay at home a little bit longer so that I have time to bury my father when he dies, and then I'll come back with you. Let me finish certain affairs 
personal affairs and then we'll talk. Or perhaps the father was ill, was sick. Mike Rothman spent years caring for his father before he died. And he couldn't move too far because he was the one caring for the dad. He says, well, you know what, my, my dad is very sick. Let me wait for dad to die and then I'll come follow you. Or perhaps he was like the younger son in the prodigal parable. He wanted to collect his inheritance. Let me be there when he dies so they send me or they give me my money. We do not know the exact answer, but one thing we know. Jesus was not unduly cruel to him. There had to be something more behind it because Jesus would not tell a person, no, don't bury your father. What is interesting is the way he answers. Let the, bear, let the dead bury their dead and you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It was Jesus who was calling him. Jesus was reminding him of his priorities and redirecting him to the task at hand. Go and proclaim the kingdom. That's our business. That's the priority. That's why we're left here. And there's a lot we could say about it. Carlos alluded to it when he was reading and praying scripture. Little side note. When Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, I believe he's, he's making an illustration of what later on the New Testament explains. That those who are without God are dead. We are born dead in sins and trespasses. Some of you were congratulating me this morning because finally my, my first grandchild was born. Beautiful, the prettiest baby on planet Earth because it's my grandchild, of course. Now, I see that nice picture it's hard for me to think of it, but I have to. I'm looking at a person who was born dead. Dead Adam. Sinful and a sinner. And I've been praying for my grandchildren since my kids were three, four, two years old. And what I've been praying for them is that they come to the Lord. And if you have little children or grandchildren, please don't lose sight of the fact that they are born dead in sins and trespasses. They are born by nature children of wrath. Part of the cost of discipleship is reckoning with those biblical realities about who we really are by nature. Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their dead. And if you're interested in collecting an inheritance, Please remember that you cannot serve God and riches at the same time. We cannot. We cannot serve God and at the, at the same time serve mammon, the God of wealth. We cannot. Because sooner or later, heart will be driven to God who has or will have the priority in our own minds and hearts. Sooner or later, when push comes to shove, no, no, this game of Argentina and France today is more important than gathering to hear another sermon. And that's a silly, silly, tiny example. But that compounds to the whole of our lives. What takes a priority? Jesus said to him, 
let the dead bury their dead. Let me tell you something I have learned and experienced. Never, I mean, you can tell me whatever you want, but when I ask a person for something and the answer is I couldn't, I didn't have time, I don't believe that. I'm sorry. We can do what we want. We have the time to do what we want. And we have the money to spend in what we want. It's just that I didn't want to. Oh, can you come to my birthday? Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't have time. No, tell me the truth. Your list, in my priority list, your birthday was down here and I had so many things on top that I, I, I cannot. It's okay. I don't have to be first in your priority list. But tell the truth. And that happens with everything. Especially with church. I don't have time to serve. I don't have time to... I don't have money to... I don't. Yes, you do. It's just that it's not that important. Because tomorrow morning you'll be at 8.30 sharp at your desk. Because I need to pay the mortgage and electricity and utilities and car payments and all of these things. So if I'm not at 8.30 sharp at my desk, I'm going to be in trouble. So it's not time. It's priorities. Thirdly, there was this interested person. But he was hesitant. Verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say bye, farewell to those at home. It's interesting that he recognized Jesus as Lord. He said, I will follow you, Lord. But um, I have people to take care of. I have things to do at home. Let me first say bye to them. And, and then we talk. How's that? I have this friend from high school. He keeps telling me, I told you that in eight years I will come to the Lord. Keep, keep counting. He says, you don't know if you have eight years. You could die tonight. But he thinks that he can do everything he needs to do. And at the end, when the body is worn down, when I don't have anything else to do or interest, then I can come to the Lord. It doesn't work that way. And if you're young and you're saying, no, 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 religion is for all people. I started when I was 17, so it's not, that, it's not for that old. But let me tell you, you don't know what you have ahead of you. You don't know if you're, you're going to make it. You don't know if you'll make it to this afternoon. So no, it is not that I have important things to do at home, Lord. And I'm interested in following you, but let me say bye to those at home. Remember the occasion when Jesus' mother and siblings came to him? He was preaching, and they said, He is crazy. I mean, his mother and his brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. So they come to pick him up. And the people tell him, Hey, Lord, your mother and your brothers and sisters are out there. And Jesus looked at the disciples and said, These are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. You know who they are? Those who hear the will of God and do it. For Jesus, His kingdom, His disciples, the affairs of His Father were more important than mom and dad and siblings. First commandment is, You shall have no other gods before you. None other. Something to those of you who are young parents. Do you know what is the age of highest divorce? My age. 
You know why? Because when you have an empty nest and your life circled and swirled around your children and all of a sudden the children are gone, you don't know what to do with each other and you divorce. Do you know why? Because the priority is not the children. Priority is not even husband and wife. The priority is God. I've been reminding that to my children now that they are pregnant or just recently having had a child. He says, remember the premarital counseling. God goes first, then you too, and then everybody else, and that includes the in-laws. And I have to remind my wife and myself, we are not the important part here. We'll see the child when we're allowed to see the child. We'll greet the child when we're allowed to greet the child. And we will talk when we're allowed to talk because we're no longer important in their lives. We may be important. Yes, we're the parents. God goes first, then the two of them, then their children, and then the rest of us. That's life. God goes first. And Jesus said that to this person. No one who puts his hands on the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. No one. And Jesus basically told him, count the cost. Do you really want to follow me? Do you know what you are getting into? When a new person comes to work for Komatsu, Japanese company, I normally tell them, especially if they are Westerners, Americans, I tell them, you have 18 months, 18 to 24 months, to get adapted to the corporate culture of a Japanese company. And in those 18 to 24 months, two things will happen to you. You'll be in love with it and spend 32 years as I have, or you'll just walk away cursing. And it happens. And basically what I tell them is count the cost. This is different. They don't operate the same way everybody operates. They have their own way of doing things. Good, bad, or indifferent. They've been in business for 101 years, very successful. They think it works. And they don't ask any opinions. You whether take it or leave it. And Jesus pretty much is that way. You take it or you it. Count the cost. Now, something to say about the disciples, the 12 disciples. John MacArthur has a great book called 12 Ordinary Men. And he goes over the profile of every one of the disciples. Basically, good for nothing. Common people like you and I, whom Jesus used mightily through his spirit to turn the world upside down. And if you have traveled, you know that Christianity has reached all corners of the world. Twelve ordinary men. You know why? Because God is the enabler. If God calls you, yes, there's a cost. But don't be afraid of the cost. He will make you afford the cost. I have a friend, Pastor Otto Sanchez, who says, if God calls you to the ministry, whether you're in ministry or not, just remember, the ministry will surround, chase, pursue, brace you, and arrest you. And it's inescapable. And I give witness to that. It's inescapable.